Hey guys, what's up? It is week 281, and the first one up is one from Synapse Films, and this is Satan's Little Helper. Now, Satan's Little Helper is kind of an interesting movie. It's kind of really an oddball movie for the time, for the budget, and for the director. This is directed by Jeff Lieberman in 2004. Now, Jeff Lieberman directed stuff like Squirm, Blue Sunshine, Remote Control, and Just Before Dawn. So most of his movies were made in like the the mid to mid seventies to mid eighties, and and the thing is Jeff Lieberman, you know, he had like some successful horror films. You know, they're kind of like minor cult. I would say cult films. I think almost every kind of hardcore horror fan knows those ones at this point. So I guess you know in two thousand four, Jeff Lieberman, you know, he he hadn't directed too much there, but. This one, uh, he, he was also writing and stuff like that. So he had a successful career behind the camera working on film and everything like that. So anyways, 2004 comes along. And this uh, he, uh, Jeff Lieberman, I guess, got this idea. That I know this from the featurette. Uh, because he, got, uh, he had a Halloween party. And somebody in a gorilla suit showed up. And he had no idea who it was. And he also had the idea, what if a kid was obsessed with you know Satan? And he wrote to Satan on Halloween it, like you do with Santa Claus. So, so that's these kind of two ideas coming together. Now, Satan's Little Helper, it feels like a, a early to mid-90s movie. It feels either a little too late or a little too early for, you know, when it was made, which makes it stand out. It, it's a quirky, bizarre little film. The main uh, actors I think most people would recognize in here is Amanda Plummer, you know, Pulp Fiction, The Prophecy, dozens of movies, very, very popular kind of cult actress. So essentially what happens is we have, uh, it's, it's Halloween, it's Halloween Day. And there's this young boy, uh, he's obsessed with this game, Satan's Little Helper. And it looks like this cheap little video game that I guess his dad bought him. And what he does is you go around and you do bad things and you collect points from Satan. So essentially what happens is um, his sister's coming back into town uh, from college to celebrate. She brings along a boyfriend, which upsets the young boy. And uh, he ends up bumping into this costume guy dressed as, you know, Satan. He thinks it's all a game because he may be a little off, the, the child, and he starts to fall around this Satan guy and becomes his little helper. Uh, little does he know that this Satan guy is out to cause immense chaos and murder and mayhem. And uh, for a long period of this film, this little boy thinks it's all game until his family becomes you know the next targets of this killer now there's a lot of zany goofy funny kills along the lines of something like uncle sam or a dr giggles but uh it has its own kind of weird tone the halloween atmosphere is really solid especially for a low budget film you know they capture that really well it kind of feels you know like legitimate little scenes in the cemetery with leaves and uh, decorations and stuff like that and there's a lot of laughs uh basically the killer has to do all this without speaking without showing his face so it's all body movements and stuff like that and the kid the reaction to it, which which adds for a lot of comedy effect. Amanda Plummer is completely off the wall in here as the mother, uh, and there's this crazy Halloween party with all these quirky, weird characters involving Pinocchio, and the deaths are a lot of fun. Like you, you can't help but chuckle when people are hurt or killed in this one because of the tone of the film. Now, Tales of Halloween would kind of rip this story off, where we kind of have a similar thing where there's a young kid like trying. To, I feel like not necessarily rip it off, but very similar in, in a vein. One of the shorts in that, um, yeah. Yeah, so, so the thing about Satan's Little Helper, it had been a long time since I watched it, maybe like five, six years, maybe longer. And I, re- I don't remember the quality on DVD being, uh, you know, expert, you know, done or anything like that. It was a low budget film. It was very cheap. But I don't remember this weird ghosting thing that I was noticing on the Blu-ray. And that could be just because when they um, did the high def elements on Blu-ray, it just shows up. And I don't, I doubt 
Synapse Films had any like negative additions to this or, or messed it up. I'm pretty sure that's probably just how it ended up coming out, or it was always there and I never noticed it because the quality was too low. But I noticed in a lot of the dark scenes there were some ghosting effects. Now, like I said, I I don't really know if it's from the movie itself because it was an early form of high def filming. Um, it was also kind of low budget, and it, it, it's really hard to determine where this kind of this comes from. Uh, as far as new special features on the disc, um, there is a new. Where is it here? The Devil on the Details, making Satan's little helper. That has you know uh, people with like a Jeff Lieberman's in there. Special effects artists are in there. People who went on to do bigger and you know bigger things like that. I don't want to say better because I really do like Satan's little helper. Mister Satan's Neighborhood a tour of the filming locations with director Jeff Lieberman. When we have a, a vintage audio commentary with the director, vintage behind the scene stuff so if you if you dig this movie i recommend checking it out um 2004 was not a great time for american horror cinema um so usually like the indies or the foreign ones is kind of what i focused on and i think that satan's little helper is a lot of fun i think it's worth your time i think you will enjoy it it's quirky it's weird and it's kind of like a, a halloween treat that's just really kind of um underlooked and, and and i think that if you could feel like you've seen all the halloween classics or anything like that i think that if you give satan's little helper a shot you will not be disappointed so check it out Okay, the next one here is from Arrow Video, and this is Two Witches. So I did not know too much about this one. I think technically it was made in 2021, and, and it was released in different festivals in different countries. But this is the kind of American debut, the wide release here for in October of uh, 2022. So this is the first-time director. The director also did the cinematography. He also stars in the movie. And uh, yeah, it's it's got a kind of a strange structure. It's almost like two different stories put together, but they're interrelated with some of the same characters. Um, it opens up in a similar vein to the witch where a baby point of view is a, is put you know put down and you know what witches do to babies a lot of times right so so we have that right off the bat so it's not really going to pull its punches and then we kind of follow the story of a, a a seemingly relatively i would say maybe not perfectly happy couple that are at a fancy dinner to celebrate you know uh her being pregnant so right in the beginning she gets this evil eye from this older lady and just staring at her in a horrible way and she can't shake this feeling and as it progresses things get weirder nightmares are are kind of put introduced to the scenario including the husband having them and they go over to have some drinks with some friends and the ultimate tragedy strikes some crazy things happen some people end up dead without spoiling too much and you know the witch is after the baby, so I'll leave it at that. But we cut into a second story, and, and the chapter two also involves, you know, um, you, this this kind of young roommate who's very bizarre, and, the, and with this other girl and their friends, and, and again, some weird situations start to play out and everything like that until they they come together with some of the same characters. Um, what the movie does well is when there is gore and violence, it's really strong, it's really well done, it's well shot, it's well made, there's no particularly negatives, especially when you look at it as a first-time director or, you know, um, in a low-budget film. You're like, oh, I would have never guessed this was too low-budget because it has a, a sense of professionalism for sure about it, and it works here. Um, I will say that a lot of the scares, although effective, they, they seem to be kind of, you know carbon copy i won't say carbon copy they're effective scares that we see a lot so you know you'll have a dark room and something kind of hazy in the background and then all of a sudden it'll, it'll come into more focus and it's like this white creepy face and a dark background behind somebody's shoulder like very typical scares you know they work though right or you know somebody waking up and having the the jacob's ladder head effect all that kind of stuff there is some nice visuals when the dream sequences happen especially with the witches with the with the white eyes and all that kind of stuff all in all i thought this was a fairly impressive first time film i 
thought that they had a lot going for it. I thought that the story was solid enough. I like that witches are kind of coming back in the forefront due to, you know, a lot of popular witch films like the Suspiria remake and, of course, The Witch. But uh, it's uh, I would be a, a bold-faced liar if I said it was comparable to The Witch or the Suspiria remake. I mean, the budget-wise or anything like that or story-wise, it's just not. But those, to me, are very, very strong films, right? And they had a lot to work with. Um, so, so I think Two Witches is definitely worth checking out. I do like when Arrow does these kind of contemporary films. They usually give them a shot and everything like that. Most of them, to me, have been uh, interesting to very good. So as far as the features are concerned, we have brand new audio commentary with director, cinematographer, editor, Pierre uh, Tagardis. Brand new audio commentary with producer Max uh, Maxine Rankon. Behind the Move, uh, two-part behind-the-scenes featurette. Interview with Two Witches actor and associate producer Dina Silva. The Boogie Woman, an interview with actor Marina uh, Party, and she basically talks about acting without any dialogue or anything like that, using her face. And uh, the original score interview is the soundtrack composer uh, Giannacci uh, Marcinkola. The piano score director Pierre Targargas talks about the inspiration behind the piano score for Two Witches. Test footage, Grimfest 2021 Q&A, and uh, all this other kind of stuff. And I want to give a shout out. Let me find the actress's name on the back here because uh, here it is. It's Christina Klebb. She has been in so many interesting movies from the Halloween remake to uh, Proxy. Now, Proxy is a movie that I find fairly interesting, but I remember her performance in the film being very strong. And I've seen Christina Klebb in a lot of movies, and I think she's a fantastic uh, indie actress. And she's in this, and it's no different. She's very solid. Um, Maybe not even indie at this point, up to that next level. But if you're interested in this kind of stuff, I would recommend checking out Two Witches. You could do a lot worse for new films. I think this one's pretty solid, and I think the Arrow did a good job with the release. Plenty of features nice cover art all that kind of stuff okay guys the patreon pick here is from jim simon and and he picked a doozy he picked star 80 from bob fossey bob fossey also did all that jazz which i need to watch but star 80 is an infamous movie i had heard about it for years made in 1983 based off the real life case of a husband and wife uh, a playmate of the year who was murdered by her jealous husband and uh, yes, yeah, so, so that's the case. Eric Roberts plays the jealous husband in what I would say a tour de force performance. Just one of the most uncomfortable, horribly disgusting, wretched performances I've ever seen. I mean that as a compliment because his character is supposed to be that. And Marywell, Mary, what is it? Marywell Hemingway from Lipstick and uh, a bunch of other films is also in this film um, as you know the kind of playmate. Uh, there's other familiar faces that pop up here and there. A lot of character actors, a lot of you know good actors. The acting's very solid in here. The soundtrack is wonderful. You know, it's a timepiece, and the soundtrack is used really well. Lots of good needle drops, and it's just the whole you know landscape is set perfectly. These characters, the backdrop, all this kind of stuff. Oh, um, I gotta mention, geez, who is the actor who plays Hugh Hefner? Hugh Hefner is the, as a character is in this, and I can't think of the act. Cliff Robertson, who's in a lot of stuff. Great Minnesota, uh, the great uh, Northfield, Minnesota raid, and Spider-Man, the original, I believe, is Cliff, Cliff Robertson's in a bunch of stuff. Malone, I think he's the baddie in that, so it, it's really interesting to see him as Hugh Hefner. Now, I'll, I'll say this first and foremost, right off the bat, Now, I do not know the details of this real-life case. It's a real grungy, a real sleazy, a real seedy, a really uncomfortable film. So saying that, you got to think, right? So we're looking at it like that. And if this movie is very inaccurate or comes across exploitative to people that know the true case, it could be a very uncomfortable experience for them. I did not know the case, so I have to take it at, you know, just the face value of the movie, which I try to do anyways. But sometimes, you know, the case and the way the movie's done, like, they'll, they'll bother me. 
Now, some might get over, some might don't, yada, yada. Maybe it's too much time has passed and it doesn't bother me. But this one, I was kind of immediately thrown into this world with Eric Roberts and Mary Will Hemingway. And Eric Roberts is like, he's violent, he's narcissistic, he's possessive, he's toxic, he is a buffoon. And while watching this, I just put me in a real bad state, you know, like the idea of that, like possible toxic masculinity or these traits that we have, obviously not nearly as bad as Eric Roberts, myself, you know, just like, you know, just sometimes you'll have these certain traits of like minor jealousy or possessiveness or, or, you know, this kind of buffoonery and seeing Eric Roberts interact with other people and just do these chauvinistic, awful garbage things and just have these terrible ideas made me sick to my stomach to the point where I just started regretting life in general. I do not know how to put this. Just, you know, I mean, I, I, nobody as as bad as Eric Roberts in this movie, but just saying that, like just that glimpse of it, like it's, it's such a perfect portrayal of a toxic human being, if that makes any sense. And it's a tragedy. It's really a tragedy. It doesn't shy away at the violence either. When the violence is there, it's, it's brutal. It's uncomfortable. It's miserable. The movie just, it, to me, it sets out and does these things, and it's just not an easy watch either. There's memorable dialogue from so many characters, too. Um, the guy he buys the shotgun from, a lot of his lines are just like everything he says is memorable. I don't know if I will ever watch Star 80 again, to be honest. Like, of all the crazy, nasty horror movies I watch, you know, I watched so many for 1980, and it just, most of them go down easy. Lost Souls, Cannibal Holocaust, maybe it's because of the familiarity. But watching this, the true case, maybe, the seediness, the way it's filmed, there's just the realism, and just maybe having a moment in my head that, like, connected me with Eric Roberts on one small level made me so sick to my own stomach that I don't think I could take this movie again, if that makes any sense. But if it's released on Blu-ray, I'll buy it. That's how dumb I am. I, Jim Simon, a great. this is a great pick. I need to watch all that jazz, but if it has any kind of similarities to uh, Star 80, I might need to you know, recover for a while, maybe a couple years to, before I watch all that jazz. And I know Roy Schneider's in that. It's based on true story as well, if I'm not mistaken. But boy, oh boy, like great performances from the two leads. And I know Mary Will Hemingway is not exactly considered the, the top-notch actress. I should mention Carol Baker's in here too, because Carol Baker pops up on the show a lot we talked about watcher in the woods and she's in all those umberto Lindsay films that i covered on the um the podcast under the stairs with duncan mcleish so like I've, I've had my good share of carol baker and she's fantastic in this i wouldn't cast anyone else as uh hemingway's mom like it feels perfect um and i believe there is a relation isn't there between mary will hemingway and ernest hemingway if i'm not uh mistaken i think there is like a, a distant uh relationship there anyways star 80 what a great movie an awful, awful great movie, if that makes any sense. Um, bother me. I know some people, maybe it'll rub them the wrong way for good reason. But hey, Eric Roberts, man. It's so funny because you know Eric Roberts is in all these B-movies, these horror movies. But in general, if you look at a lot of Eric Roberts' career, like Runaway Train or this, you're like, this dude is such a good actor. And like he always does a solid job, even if the movie is crummy or cheap and he's in it for five seconds. He's always decent, at least, I would say. I'm sure he phones it in, but some of those movies you don't, I, I feel like, you don't need to do too much um, that he's in. But I, I mean, I always liked him from best of the best one and two, but like, I remember him mentioning in interviews and stuff, he couldn't get a date after star 80. And I see why, you know, I see why for sure. So good stuff. Okay, guys, never going to happen to those 1980 movies. They did this to you. They're trying to turn us against each other. Just look at them. What do they know about friendship anyway? I'll get him. You watch. I'll take care of those sons of bitches. 
Watch it, Alan. I'm shooting. Oh, good Lord. It's... It's unbelievable. It's... It's horrible. I can't understand the reason for such cruelty. It must have something to do with some obscure sexual writer. With the almost profound respect... Getting very careless. Blood in your hair. What will we do? You want to look pretty, don't you? Pretty for me. I can't believe you're not afraid. All you have to do is piss on it. Could he care blood, ain't you? God damn it, Ralph, get out of here. Go on, get. Leave people alone. You'll never come back again. Oh, shut up, Ralph. It's got a death curse. Evil. Gone, my leg. Gone, my leg. I'm here. You're here. There's a bug bank out there. Messenger of God. Stay here. Demanding everything, including blood. John, I want this material burned. All of it. Son of a bitch. Wendy. Darling. Light of my life. I'm not gonna hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. I'm gonna bash them right the fuck in. <laughs> well, Dad, are you proud of me now? Do I measure up? Huh? My son, my son was a son of a bitch. And he was no good. That's it. My son is dead. I don't want to talk about him no more. Oh, Sandy, you're gonna die. Major Lacrimaro. Ma'am. Major Tenebra. He didn't find any boy. Major Susperioro. You know as well as I do, it takes all kinds of critters to, to make, make farmer, vince, and fritters. <laughs> I wonder who the real cannibals are. You know, I'm going to be relatively brief with a lot of these 1980 movies. I know it's like, Dave, come on. But it's just like I've said a lot about a lot of bigger 1980 movies. And some of these just don't I don't have as much to say. The first one up is The Beast in Space. I have both copies still sealed for some reason because I'm a jackass. But I watched the XXX version. And this is a super bizarre movie. This is released by Severn. This one is an RKO distribution. So I don't even know how to go about The Beast in Space. Um, it's by what? Alfredo Bresna, who I, I Naked Girl in the Park. I, I watched that one and a couple other ones of his. Um, this is a semi-sequel to La Bete, or The Beast, uh, the Wolverian Bolkachek movie, and I'll say this now, the La Bete, ten times better than The Beast in Space, but I figured you guys knew that too, so, like, okay, so, right, the year before we had Alien, right, 1979, so I guess we're trying to get to space, and there was a couple, 
big alien ripoffs of 1980, including Contamination, Alien 2. Now, would I call the Beast in Space a ripoff? No. I feel like this shit has more in common with Caligula than it does Alien, but it does take place in space. Um, it feels like kind of those old school space movies where you find like a count, whatever, you know, like the ones, what was Forbidden World with Leslie Nielsen or whatever it is, Forbidden Planet, I can, Forbidden Planet, I believe it is. So, yeah, like, but it's not even that. So, uh, this is a strange film and the plot is pretty ridiculous. Um, I will admit that I watched this in broad daylight with my big window open in the front room. I live right on a main road. My TV is 85 inches. I'm not bragging. It's just what it is. And like, I didn't register like an Amazon prime drivers pulling up and like, there's just all out orgy fellatio going on, like rape scene. And I'm just like, I'm like, I should close the fucking window. I'm also working out in my underwear. I'm like, I should close the fucking window. And this is why I'm having like this stupid story about, you know, why I should close the window over talking about Beast of Space because I really don't have that much to say. I should mention that Venetini, uh, uh, what the fuck, Venetini, I always mispronounce poor uh, Venetino Venetini is in this film who, and Serpa Lane, of course, you know. Um, but Vettatini is in a bunch of stuff from 1980, including, you know, City of the Living Dead, um, Terror Express, Contraband. He had quite, uh, Cannibal Apocalypse, quite the year, and Beast in Space, right? So he plays kind of this, like, thuggish guy who gets in a fight with the main guy who's, like, a captain. And, and I barely know the plot of this thing. They end up on this, this planet, and there's a lot of sex going on, and there's, like, weird shit, and it ends in this giant orgy. There's a lot of crazy nightmare sequences where our lead is being, you know, chased down by this creepy uh, beast creature that ends up molesting people as a giant rubber dick. It's pretty pornographic in the XXX version, but I really don't know what to say besides that. Um, it's not exactly the most, uh, you know, uh, cohesive or... Um, easy to follow or that you care to follow movie is beast in space from 1980 um it is what it is you know it's a softcore or hardcore depending which version you watch porno in space with a semi-sequel to labete which is hilarious because we have all these like unofficial sequels in 1980 like alien 2 and fucking patrick still lives which aren't real sequels they're not. They're not even real sequels. Um, but hey, you can you can thank Zombie 2 for that, which is actually genuinely a fucking classic. So hey, it is what it is. Okay, the next one here is uh, Caged Women, a.k.a. Island Women. And I believe this is by Erwin, uh, what the fuck is his name? And I think I, I went, to, this is the same guy who directed, you know, the Invisible Man movie from 1970 that, that gave me fits or, you know, some of the other ones. And I always badmouth this guy as being like the worst director. So Caged Women. I kind of enjoyed this one finally. If it's the same guy, I'm not, I, I can't remember. And, and Bridget Leahy is in here, which is a plus. Um, so basically, we have a group of slave girls that are basically used for prostitution for these soldiers, these Nazi soldiers. Are they Nazis? I don't know. They're fascist. And uh, yeah, they don't like it. So they're going to try to escape. Every once in a while, they do seem to enjoy it. And, you know, people come at night and have sex with them. The the person, uh, the soldiers that they do enjoy, I guess. And the, the leader of these, these soldiers is this like evil woman, of course, you know, think Ilsa um, inspired deal where she like rules with an iron fist. She makes them fight. Uh, there is a, a naked fight scene between a man and a woman where a woman whoops this dude's ass and does all these flips and knocks him down. It's pretty fun. But yeah, this movie is nonstop sex, nonstop, you know, so, like sex. That's all it really is and nudity. And you're like, hey, why not? You know, there is some light torture, people being sprayed with hoses and stuff like that. But for the most part, it's just a lot of sex and a lot of talking and a lot of nudity and it just never slows down in that aspect. Um, kind of enjoyable to be honest and there's some just desserts at the very end um, don't have too much to say about it it's your 
I would not say typical woman in prison because it is it is very typical, but it's not as brutal, but it's as, as highly sexual as any of them as far as nudity and sex is concerned. A lot of close-ups of vaginas and all that kind of stuff, and, and uh, there's a couple dicks in here as well swinging. I, I don't think it's too explicit on the dicks. There is dicks, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly. I see so many dicks in movies nowadays that, you know, hey, it's, it's, it is what it is, you know. Uh, so, so uh, Caged Women, it's up to you. Island Women, there is a Blu-ray overseas, and I think there had to be an United States release at some point. I will try to find that information for you in the links. Okay, the next one here is going to be Crazy Thunder Road. Now, I do not have a copy. I ordered a copy. It wasn't going to make it in time. I had to watch it. This is also by the same director who did Burst City. The copy I ordered from Third Window Films. So, Crazy Thunder Road. Now, this is a crazy, crazy-ass movie, and you would expect it from the director of Burst City. He did a handful of other ones, ones I watched. I think I actually prefer over this. But Burst City is kind of a weird musical, like, punk post-apocalyptic Japanese film and you can see there's a lot of similarities in Crazy Thunder Road um, we have this gang this this leader of the gang basically quits his buddy ex-buddy takes over the gang they have some animosity towards each other and um, he essentially kind of starts a rivalry with all the other gangs they want him dead while his buddy kind of joins this military faction this group or whatever led by this older guy and a lot of his former gang members end up there and it creates this like big turmoil between everybody the gangs the the military people and everybody's kind of out to get each other. There's a lot of drama. There's a lot of motorcycle riding. There's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of screaming. And at the very end, there's this giant all out shootout kind of chaotic moment of people dressed in leather with weird shit on their face. It's kind of like, you know, cyberpunk, I guess, biker stuff yes and warriors it's definitely inspired by the warriors and stuff like that all in all i think it was pretty solid i think it was fairly entertaining i think that you know the the ending's pretty wild and cool and there is some homosexuality in here which i did not expect which you don't typically see in this fashion in this kind of way um all in all crazy thunder road's worth a watch it's worth a look it's definitely a cult movie i don't know what other you know group of film fans would have it it's super bizarre super weird and super chaotic and loud um but not as chaotic as loud as when you start getting into shit like Screaming the Banshee or from the 90s or something like Pinocchio 931 I think that's the AK title that shit is just loud or like even Tetsuo which is really fucking loud and it's like the, the best loud Japanese movie of all time is Tetsuo so yeah it's not as loud and crazy as that but definitely a precursor to somewhat like that kind of deal all right, the next one from 1980 is a second film I'm covering by Graydon Clark. Graydon Clark did uh, Without Warning this year as well, and this is The Return. This has got a really nice cast here. We got Jan Michael Vincent, Sybil Shepard, Martin Landau, Raymond Burr, um, Vincent Chiavelli is also in here, and I feel like uh, Neville Brand is in here as well, not listed on the front. Um, so yeah, Neville Brand and Martin Landau are kind of, you know, like uh, uh, Graydon Clark regulars at this point. Um, Neville Brand's in Without Warning as well, and uh, what, who was the other one I just mentioned. Um, geez, I just saw it. Martin Landau is also in Without Warning, so they must have shot these fairly similar back-to-back. And the tone kind of looks similar, the, the film and all this kind of stuff. And if I'm not mistaken, when I saw the DP, I think it was Daniel Pearl. Yeah, Daniel Pearl, Pearl fucking shot this. Daniel Pearl shot Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So that's worth saying. That's worth something, right? So essentially what we have here is in the very beginning, two young kids, kind of just the worst dad of all time. He's like, you stay outside. I'm going to this bar at like 10 o'clock at night to get some drinks. You stay out here. Leaves his like seven, eight-year-old kid out to stand out in the middle of a, you know, kind of a small town road. And this kid sees something in the sky. A young girl passing through also sees it. They share a moment. They separate to never see each other again until now. 
So something weird, a giant ship or some weird disturbance is kind of going over this same small town. And Sybil Shepard works with UFOs now. Her father is Raymond Burr. He runs this kind of organization. And she's like, I want to go down there and check it out. Raymond Burr's like, okay. Um, uh, and I love Raymond Burr, by the way. He lets her go. She ends up going there, and in this small town is also, you know, Jan Michael Vincent playing an alcoholic sheriff, the role he was meant to play, if you guys know what I mean. And, you know, uh, basically strange cattle mutilations are happening. Martin Landau is a senior officer, and he's just playing a goofball performance where he dumps beer on a donut and tries to eat it. You gotta love it. He's just having a bunch of fun, just doing whatever the fuck Martin Landau wants to do. And also we have Raymond Burr, who is like a cattle rancher, kind of cattle head guy. He owns a lot of cattle. He's angry. He's pissed off. Doing what Neville brand does well right yelling at people and just saying all sorts of upsetting things vincent chevelli also had an interaction that night that the young kids did as well so he's kind of in the outskirts and he partially is responsible for all these weird cattle mutilations and all this kind of shit so um they all start to do some research and people end up dead some cows end up dead and it kind of all points into this final climactic moment where you know that ship's going to come back and it's going to be coming and looking for people that it possibly had interactions with before raymond burr is finding it i did enjoy seeing raymond burr and neville brand get to act alongside each other. I mean, I like Neville Brand. I think he's got a great intensity. Also this year, besides Without Warning, he did the Ninth Configuration. He had a good year, too. And uh, he's really great in the Ninth Configuration. I talked about that last week. He's solid in this. He's angry. He's a grouchy son of a bitch. Um, Raymond Burr is fine. He's good. He always does a good job. I always like seeing him. Um, Sybil Shepard's solid in here as well. I feel like Sybil Shepard is an actress. When you see, like, Taxi Driver in the last picture show, you're like, Sybil Shepard should have been. I'm sure she was to a certain extent. Like, you, like we, I, she should be, like, still huge. Like, I, that's how I felt. Like, and then she's in The Return. It's just, she's a weird career. And Jan Michael Vincent, you know, he was in great stuff like The Big Wednesday and some other movies. What's the one? Um, Enemy Territory. He's in that one in a wheelchair. And he's in lots of cool stuff. But, you know, obviously he had some, some uh, substance abuse problems. And it's like they fully embraced it in this one. I, again, I make the joke about without warning. Like, I wonder what the beer budget was on without warning when you got guys like, you know, uh, you know Neville Brand and, and Martin Landau and all these guys just like, who loves the other one? With fucking Ralph Meeker in that one is it Ralph Meeker I think it is uh so you're just like I, I just wonder what the beer or is it beer budget is in that and it's just like this one might top it like you know like I want to know the beer budget on every Graydon Clark movie and there I'll be ha- I'll die a happy man but as far as it's concerned the return is fine it's it's solid it's okay it's kind of a run-of-the-mill sci-fi horror film there is a couple graphic murder scenes I, I did enjoy in that um aspect they're not too too graphic but there's some gore here as far as the special features are concerned we have an audio commentary with Graydon Clark on camera interview with Graydon Clark and we have the Katrina's Nightmare Theater. Now Graydon Clark is kind of an underrated guy. It took me a while to come around to him but I really like Without Warning and you know some of his other movies I do kind of enjoy. I don't love Satan's Cheerleaders if whatever that one's called but The Return is fun as well and I love it Uninvited. It's a blast too. So Graydon Clark, a lot, a lot of different movies, a lot of different kind of genres but all cults so a little underrated. I know he has a book out if you're interested in Graydon Clark's career. Check it out. Career, career, career. Okay, the next one here is The First Deadly Sin, starring Frank Sinatra. Now, this is more of a police procedural oh, with a serial killer. Uh, who else is in here? Oh, uh, Faye Dunaway is also in this film. Gotta mention her. And some other familiar faces. Anthony Zerby has a small role. Joe fucking Spinell, of course, has got to pop up in here. And you'll see a lot of other familiar faces. Like, I know I'm forgetting some. There's a lot of good character actors in here. Um, geez, Jeffrey DeMunn is in here. Uh, man, I know I'm missing some. But just a lot of people, you know, because he's interacting with a lot of people. So Sinatra, you know, he's a classic classic actor he's two weeks before retirement we're doing we're doing that old stereotype but there's this killer going around the city 
and he's using some weird uh, blunt instrument of some sorts, and he's hitting people upside the head with it, killing them. Uh, Frank Sinatra's wife is having some real medical problems, and he's super stressed out. He's coming towards the end of his career, and he, he wants to catch this guy. And um, this, these crimes are driving him crazy. So we see the killer. We see who he is and all this kind of stuff, and Sinatra's kind of doing some really good shady, though, police work at times. I mean... It's the 80s. I feel like every cop in every 80s movie is doing some shady police work. So that's what Martin Landau, I mean, Martin Landau, Frank Sinatra. I just talked about Martin Landau in the last video. Frank Sinatra's kind of doing here some, some shady police work, but it's some good police work too. Some, And he's trying to figure it out while, you know, some of his superiors are trying to fight him on it because all signs start to point to this guy being kind of a higher up. And he, and like, we have a lot of this police procedural stuff, which is solid. Um, we have a lot of interactions with characters. My, my favorite is the Joe Spinell stuff because Joe Spinell is like a doorman in this high end apartment. And his stuff is hilarious. He's like, he's like, I'll bring love. He's like, forget the love. Next time, bring money. You know, it's Spinell's great. Like, and it's great because if you look at Spinell, like who he acted with, the movies he's in, he was directed by some of the best directors of all time. He's acted alongside some of the best actors of all time. And you'll never see Joe Spinell not hold his own weight. You know, he always holds his own weight. He's never, he's so good. You know, he could star in a cheap little horror movie and he's great, or he can be in the biggest, best film ever made alongside somebody like, you know, Stallone or or uh, anybody, and he's just great in it, or, or like Warren Oates, and he just holds his own. He just does a great job. He, he's just such a tremendous actor. And, like, I know I'm blowing, I like I, blowing, I blow character actors, my favorite, and Spinell's one of the best. He's good in this, and it's just small little funny role acting alongside Frank Sinatra, which must have been very cool. Um, but anyways, for him, I mean, and it was fun to watch too. So like that, and then the movie ends on a really downbeat 1980 way, you know, kind of the corrupt cop deal. But like at this point you're watching it and you're like, if I was him, would I just do it? Like maybe, maybe I would. I don't know. I know that's bad to say now, um, you know, with all these like horrible, like corrupt cops around and everything like that. And it's it brought right to the forefront nowadays because it's, everything's fucking recorded. So everybody sees this shit. So like watching a detective do something illegal in a movie and then being like, yes, you're like, Ooh, wait, but Hey, it's kind of like 10 to midnight too, where Bronson's so corrupt in that he's like he's messing with like the evidence shit but we know the guy's guilty because we've seen him do it but like as a cop he, you know it's just like that crazy shit like that so this um yeah this has a nice cd look it's a solid movie i believe it's probably based off a book um first deadly sin um some graphic murders they're pretty crazy and the killer's intense the end the, the end conversation the killer has with frank sinatra's good stuff i'm um, kind of on the nose when he's in the closet there and stuff it's just like okay is that what we're doing but it is what it is the first deadly sin warner archive released the dvd no blu-ray i don't think maybe a foreign hd print floating around from germany a tv print or something like that or maybe even a disc okay and the last one from 1980 is the savage hunt of king stash or stock i'm not 100 percent sure which way it's pronounced this is a belarusian or russian film if i'm not mistaken eastern european for sure and there's two versions of this film. There's an hour and 45-minute version, which has correct subtitles. And then there's a two-hour and six-minute HD version floating around without the correct subtitles. So um, I watched the hour and 45-minute version of it so I could watch the subtitles. And they're needed. It's a very talkative movie. If I could compare this to one movie off the top of my head, it would be Lokis from 1970. It's in the um, the All uh, Haunts box set from Severin. I covered that for 1970, and I really loved Lokis. I thought it was very special. Easier to follow than this one, I will say, and more straight to the point. So, uh, The Savage Hunt, I will say it's called Savage Hunt, is a movie that is beautifully shot, it's beautifully decorated, 
animated. It's beautifully constructed, but it's very hard to follow for a westernized person because the movie is rich in imagery and rich in uh, mythology and rich in history from the country. So it is a period piece. We follow this guy who's interested in studying these kind of things. He shows up to this house and he realizes that this family is just not right. These people are bizarre. They seem to have claimed there's a curse. We hear all sorts of these mythologies about these kind of almost spiritual or creatures or the blue man that all this kind of weird shit like that right um king king stosh or king stosh and, and all this kind of stuff and, and you're just like what is going on and, and soon enough people that know more people that let him in on some more of the subject start to end up dead so we start having like this mystery at the middle of it but it's also surrounded by this superstition which is a brilliant way to do it and all these characters he interacts with and everything like that now this movie if I had maybe more context or I just could watch it a couple more times, it could be higher. It, it, I give it like a three out of five, but it easily could be a four out of five. It's just not the easiest movie to follow. Now, like I said, Eastern European and Russian cinema is by far the hardest thing for me to connect. If it's like Father Frost or, or Daddy Frost or whatever movie is, or even when we get to like Rasputin, uh, Agony, Rest, Last Days of Rasputin and stuff like this, I can see stuff in the movies. Hard to be a God, which I think is my favorite of the Russian films. Um, I can see like good things in them and I can respect it, especially that one. I think it's a pretty fucking great, but sometimes there's, there's definitely a miss, you know, where I'm like, I, I miss something here. I miss something there. I can't grab the context or, you know, social cues and everything like that. And I don't have as much trouble with other countries, but when it hits a lot of these Eastern Europe countries, I, I just zone out because I get a little lost. Um, but visually, this movie's gorgeous. Um, the mythology is interesting. So much good stuff going for it. You can watch it on YouTube, um, the 145-minute version. I'd love to see that HD version with correct subtitles could fill in on some of the blanks. But just like right away, it sets up. It's creepy. It, it does this exposition, but it's like set in this dark castle. almost reminds you of Dracula or something like that. And uh, good stuff. I would recommend checking this out if you can track it down, if this is up your alley. Like the weird superstition and mythology. If you love this kind of stuff, this one's 100% for you hey guys what's up we're here to do a universal horror movie and this was what the third picture i guess technically well second installment third picture this is 1923's hunchback from notre dame or notre notre dame whichever you prefer uh hugo who wrote this original book victor hugo victor hugo also wrote lemez um we actually both have read this story years ago mm-hmm. uh yeah it, it's a classic story it's been adapted uh several times and is this the first adaptation uh, I believe probably so. This is the Universal one, or Universal had something behind it. And technically, it's not distributed by Universal anymore. But following the lineage of Universal, we want to tackle anything that involves classic monsters that kind of fits in that wheelhouse. And I believe it was like produced by Universal Pictures in the beginning. We went through this whole thing when I did research and everything. So, what's on the list? We're going through it. It stars Long Chaney Sr. as Quasimodo, of course, the, uh, the titular character. And uh, if you read the story or see any other adaptations of it, they're all a little different. This one is no different from that. It is an hour and 40 minutes, which is kind of long for a silent film. But mm-hmm. if you, you calculate, you know, the screen cards popping up and all that kind of stuff, it, it you know, it, it's probably well, probably like an hour and 30, an hour and 25. But it, it's an epic story. This, this book oh, is yeah. what, like... 1200 pages it's like a a lord of the rings book or something like that even longer possibly so uh yeah i guess i don't even know how to do the impressions of this essentially quasimodo is a deformed man that lives in a bell tower he's kind of taken in by you know i guess it depends which story you're looking (laughs) at 
But uh, he's he's basically isolated, almost mute kind of character, and he falls for this young um, movies where it's gypsy girl in Esmeralda. But he's not the only one. The soldier, the leader of the guards, does, and a corrupt, I will say, some sort of official, all have infatuation with Esmeralda, and it's gonna end, and and the gypsy leader has yeah. an infatuation. So it's still gonna end in a big battle and all this kind of stuff over her and over other things at the backdrop of, you know, corrupt politicians and everything like at that. the backdrop of Notre Dame of Paris itself. The cathedral itself is the character. And this book was originally written because in Victor Hugo's day, like the 1830s, whatever, the cathedral had ran into such a state of ruin. It's like, you know, it's a shame this building has been here for hundreds of years. And so much history has happened around it. and, And here we are post-French Revolution where we're just like lobbing off the statues of king's heads and you know destroying everything and we let this go to waste so he writes this story to say try to save it to save the cathedral and to help preserve it and it it, it essentially works and, and Notre Dame of Paris has become like the icon of Paris more so than I think than like the Eiffel Tower um which doesn't pop up until like the 1920s or something. Which is funny, if you have read the story, they take a long time to explain the view from yeah. the bell tower. And, from, and it makes perfect sense because that's probably what Quasimodo saw all the time. And right. it, it, it's just kind of brilliant, you know, because Quasimodo is a very, you know, physically deformed human being. Mm-hmm. Great makeup, Alon Chaney uh, Sr. I think his makeup and the way he portrayed him um, has influenced Hunch, uh, Quasimodo forever. It, it literally is, you know, how he looks, his, mm-hmm. his curly hair, the move. A- everything he's done has been highly influential. And this is, uh, you know, Lon Chaney Sr. is one of the most influential horror actors of all time, if not the most, considering when you watch his movements, his his postures, everything like that. Um, they, they show through in other actors and stuff later on, especially people like, you know, you can tell they're inspired by it, especially physical actors. Oh yeah, physical actors, every time you're going to see, I think, an interpretation of this movie, like, they are going to have, I think, recreations of shots from this movie. Yeah. I, even, like, like, like the animated version of uh, the, the Disney one. Um, they, like, they just pull the imagery from this. Um, and like I said, yeah, it is a silent film. Yeah, it does change things around based off the novel. But the novel has always been kind of wishy-washy, what version you're reading, what adaptation. And and Victor Hugo in his own life has... Changed it himself. Has changed it himself, oh. you know, from, from novel to play production to, you know, like when he releases, like, the, the final chapters of the book, um, it's... He completely changed his mind as to what, what Esmeralda was actually supposed to be. Yeah. Um, well, we have the the witch character in the book, and she they change that around too. It's actually more yeah. tragic for her because in the, the book she actually gets right. to talk to Esmeralda. Um, so the one thing I want to talk about is the sets. Now, did mm-hmm. we determine this was a set, right? We did. Well, yeah, we yeah, were, was, we weren't was, was built certain, but then we watched a commentary yeah. and it was. And because I mean, like, I figured it had to be a set because uh, you know Quasimodo's doing too many crazy, dangerous stunts. Right. I, I, they can speed up, you know, the, the stuff. But I just was very impressed with the depth. Like, mm-hmm. and I haven't, I know this is a weird comparison, but the depth with the characters and what's going on in the background and the extras and stuff reminded me very much of Rear Window because I think that was like the best I've ever seen it. Like the distance, the street, mm-hmm. knowing that was a set, but it was just very much like so many extras and so many characters and everything like that. Now, 
when you watch a silent movie, a lot of the characters do end up looking alike. So Grimoire, mm-hmm. um, the Frollo type character, his name's not actually Frollo in this. And um, geez, who is the third one that looked very similar? Uh, Don Don Carlos. What is his name? He's basically the good bishop or the the religious figure. They all looked very similar. I so, almost thought they might be played by the same actor it, until it's they appeared Grimoire. together. Grimoire. Yeah, and, and then so so in the book, in most interpretations, you you have the the Frollo brothers. So there's Jayon, who is a very minor character, um, but he's basically, both brothers are raised in the church. Jayon, like, gives into worldly possessions, and he goes and he frolics with gypsies and and things like that. And then Claude Frollo becomes, like, the high bishop of Notre Dame, but he becomes, like, the antagonist. Yeah, he, he has all these repressed things towards us. Right. Brother, which... Is the best part of the novel, but it's never ever fully realized in the movie source materials because they're afraid to make it a religious figure. Be- right. You know. So but- in most interpretations, they usually take Claude Frollo, who's the high bishop, and they put all like the negative stuff onto the brother. They keep the brother alive much longer in yeah. the film, and he's the villain. Or, like in the case of the Disney version... They change Claude Frollo from a bishop to a judge, well, and then you can have him be evil. Which, the one negative thing is because in the book, Frollo is that religious figure, but he's also the protector of Quasimodo, so he's a, he has a weird duality about right. him. And that never translates properly in this film. He's more of a, I'm an evil villain, which is a shame because Frollo is the second most interesting character in the book. I mean, maybe the most. He is the most. Yes. But Quasimodo is so iconic, you can't, you know, you can't underestimate his, you know, his, his anything about him. Like I said, Long Chaney Sr. steals the show. Like, when he's screaming at the people, the facial expressions mm-hmm. he makes, and the glee. And what was the line? They actually quote some of the book in here, which I love. The, the cue cards pop up. What was the line about his face? They said it was filled with such um, glee uh, disdain and uh, sadness, and it's the way it's put. You just like that just brings a tear to your eye. Oh, yeah. Like it was just so brilliantly put. There's a lot of stuff in the book like that, and it does incorporate that, which mm-hmm. a lot of silent movies I don't think would incorporate the source material that close. I'm sure cer- I'm certain that Phantom of the Opera won't. I'm certain they will. Oh, I'm certain they I, won't. from that book source material. Um, Phoebus uh, in the commentary, the uh, expert who's it's a great commentary. This is mm-hmm. the Kino Lorber disc was mentioning that you know he's kind of a throwaway character and. He is. She didn't say he was bad. He's just the most uninteresting. And Phoebus has always been the most uninteresting character in the book. I mean, Grimoire is interesting in the book. Okay, here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Glopan. Is it Glopan? He's good in the movie and the book. And there's a little bit of, you know, I think, interaction between him and the Frollo character in here, more so in the book, right? I don't remember them having any interaction. So... uh, Again, we're... we're, we're, It's a long story. Right, like, it's a weird thing where... Where they they took Claude Frollo and they, in this movie, Claude Frollo is Don Claude and he's the high bishop. Yeah, it makes sense why he would talk to Clopin in this. Yeah, and and, and they took the negative aspects of Claude Frollo and put it onto Jayon. Now, Clopin has an interaction with Jayon because he, Jayon is vying for the love of Esmeralda. Clopin is her adopted father, adopted, um, and... So, so, so he's trying to negotiate with that, and but then he does have a scene where he interacts with yeah, yeah. Don Frollo, so, Don Claude, basically asking, where's Esmeralda? I've come to take her away. And he's like, oh, she's already been sent to the gallows. So, yeah. Um, the positives for me, the sets are amazing. Long Chaney mm-hmm. Sr. is amazing. Um, the amount of 
you know, scale yeah. as far as actors are concerned and the end fight scene and all that stuff is, is much more impressive than one would think. But I guess, you know, they went all out when they made these movies and, oh, and yeah. it shows and it's a classic for a reason. It's, it's iconic for a reason. Um, would you have anything else you'd like to say? Um, standouts, definitely the sets. Um, I, I, I think the actors do a fantastic job, even though it's silent. Um, yeah. I think Clopin is, is, is great. Um, Grinoir and Phoebus have this like cute little exchange when the food exchange, the, the food exchange where where Phoebus is trying to like meet up with Esmeralda and he's in love and and he's letting uh, Grinoir eat, but he but not letting him eat. It's like like that kind of shtick, and you know it's funny, it's cute. Um, uh, Quasimodo is, I think, a bit more villainous in this. More of a version, monster. more of a monster. Like, we don't get his inner monologue. You don't get his inner monologue. I, I don't. The gargoyles think... aren't here. Yeah, yeah. There's no really no mention of uh, of or, like or jolly the the gargoyles. There is a jolly. That there, is jolly. there is a jolly there... was a huge part of that story. <laughs> right, jolly was a huge part. Jolly it might be. I, I think of one of the uh, one one of the chapter names is is I think you know the troubles of saving a goat or something like that. I, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um. But no, no, no. I, I think that this is a fantastic version. Um, and like I said, every, every interpretation I've ever seen of this movie has just always been so vastly different from the source yeah. material, from each other. And it's like you just have to take it as it is. I mean, it's a long book. You you could never accommodate the entire thing into one no. two hour. And, and they film. do a decent job here. They do a really good job. They do they a good job. A lot. And and there, I think that every <laughs> version. Of the film that I have seen has has usually kept all the themes of the book present, and and, and like I said, a major theme of that book is the appreciation of, of this piece of architecture and what role it has played in in, in history, whether you know real or made up. One thing I will mention about Victor Hugo is he tends to punish the people who have um, who live for something, who actually you know will stand up for something they tend to get punished while somebody like grimoire and phoebus who don't really have any like strong beliefs kind of squander through life and survive which is kind of the truth you know usually the people with hardcore beliefs or or maybe that willingness to defend their beliefs or their loves die while cowards survive and that happens somewhat in a lamez as well it's more than somewhat. I think that is the theme of lamez (laughs) it's the theme of hunchback too especially the book right um and I think that just might be like the French philosophy at the time. Um, I, I think that you you notice similar things going on in like the Russian literature, such as like like War and Peace. Um, just don't don't have ambition. Well, live or, your life as a or scab. don't be honest. <laughs> That's yeah, it. I think honesty gets you killed. In these two, right? So uh, John Stanley's creature features. We're gonna go Hunchback. Let's find it. Um, Hunchback of Notre Dame, three out of five. Long Cheney is Quasimodo, the deformed bell ringer who falls in love with gypsy girl Esmeralda. This features a sequence in which his the misshapen freak is publicly whipped on a turntable. For mastery of makeup and acting, this is Cheney's finest midnight hour. Directed by Wallace Wolseley, Cheney closely followed Victor Hugo's description of the hump man and wore a device so he could not stand erect. Ernest Tolerance, Patsy Ruth Miller, and okay, yeah. So, um, that's actually have a model of this. Uh of him getting whipped. Is your that. model from this film? I, I imagine it is. Because there's another one. No, that, that's the Universal model. That's the kids. Universal. It's okay. based off the most iconic scene. But 
Also, at the same time, we should mention it has the great scene where he's picked as the ugliest, the fool of the city. And that was... Yeah. Movie. Yeah, that's a good stuff. Yeah. So, and I think every version has... Yeah. James O'Neill, tear on tape. <coughs> they gotta show the cover. You don't gotta show it. They gotta know what they it know looks what it like is. so they can buy it. They probably already have it. Or they're not. I feel like like the icons on the camera like show up. Like, Just read the damn up. thing. Okay. <laughs> How to make a monster. Nope. Hold on. Which hunchback? Okay. 1923. Yep. Three and a half stars out of four. I almost said Chansey. Cheney is great as Quasimodo in this impressive early version of Victor Hugo's novel. Although dated, as most silence seen today, this still has the epic sweep and melodramatic flourishes for which it was famous, with good atmosphere and convincing makeup and set design. Then he writes the best scene. Best scene. Cheney scudding along the facade of the cathedral and then hanging upside down from a gargoyle to thumb his nose at the crowd below. There, there are far better scenes okay, than, okay. than that. I only interest is the 1939 version underneath. He gave four out of four. Right. And it's Charles Lawton's in there. Marine O'Hara, Sid, uh, Sir Cedric Hardwick, Edmund O'Brien. Dude, we might have to watch this when there's other ones too. Um, oh... And Charles Lawton is the hunchback. Dude, we might just have to watch that. Is that a universe? No, no. There's only We just might have to watch that. Then we have the one here with Anthony Hopkins from 82. This is the one I must be thinking of that, that has dialogue. And I think that's where we get the line, I wish I were made of stone like you, I think. That's where we get the line, I am not an animal, I am a man. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, that's Elephant Man. I'm sorry. Uh, anyways, three and a half out of five. Oh, I was thinking Batman Returns. With Does Penguin, Penguin say that? Well, he's but I think he the says, elephant man. I am not a man. I am an animal. Yeah, that, that, well, that's a take on you know the elephant man, right? Or or or, um, or um like like Merrick. the the um get your paws off me. Shh, you we know it's you monster. That's not what happens. Three and a half out of five for me. It's hard to rate silent films that are classics. Uh, you know, I don't like. I, do I compare it to Doctor Caligari? I mean, is it better than Caligari? Yes and no. It's a better story, but no, no, I don't, I don't know, because Caligari was so ahead of its time for that twist that you're just like, <gasps> but now we know that you can point that twist out a mile away. That's kind of like the Carnival of Souls; you could point it out a mile away, but back then you're like, oh my god, like right, like. So it's hard. It, it, it's it's almost impossible for me to judge these films fairly, but I you should always watch them because they history you know, like yeah all the you, movies ripped them off it is hard i mean i mean the the audiences in this day thought that this was like 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 disgusting violent like like the, the movies duffing by death and murder and you know that's they're appalled by it the that's it, french it is so tame compared to what we were just watching it's, you know like it's tame compared to the universal which is yeah. tame compared to the hammer mm-hmm. which is tame compared to last house on the left which is tame compared to uh, untold story which is named compared to august underground you know what i mean it like it goes on and on and on and you know and so i i don't know i i would easily give this a four out of five i think good. it's fine I, th- I think it's better than fine actually do i like it better than dr caligari yes and no different um caligari had a certain style the that German I expressionalism think, which we see in other things right when which you know got revived i think by tim burton this is almost an epic like this is less you know this is like a classic epic it is a classic epic it's like you know watching the moses movie with uh charles heston you're talking about um 
Ten, Ten Commandments. Commandments. Everybody's in that movie. It's uh, a Vincent Price, the Pharaoh. I think every I, John uh, um, Carradine's. Everybody's in it. Like, it's every so single, weird. Like if you look at the cast, you're like every single person. That's like how the West was won. You're like, we got every actor we, we could get. Like, so. I'm always confused when they do an Egyptian like Moses story, and I'm like, I'm like, I thought, I thought. I thought Moses was in Egypt. I thought everybody was black in Egypt. Stop. I, I don't know. I'm always Stop. bewildered by it. That's just the way they were. And people were okay with it. But then nowadays they're getting mad about stupid shit. Right, right. Uh, people are crazy. Um, so next week will be the Phantom of the Opera, the yes. 23, 25 version, 25, with Lon Chaney Sr. And now there is a universal, 100%. This one I, I think counts as well because this is where they took that count. But there's the classic universal from the 40s or 30s, um, which is always in the box sets. But the classic face that everybody knows of the Phantom is Long Chaney Sr. And that's the silent version. This is the one we're watching, yes. Yeah. So after this, we probably have a few, like three or four more, maybe some borderline thrillers, maybe a couple more silent ones. And then I think we'll get in the Dracula 31 with uh, Bell Lugosi. And that's when I think we actually start the true universal run. So they have two phantoms then, right? Yeah, there's one, this one, and then, like, but it's weird because Universal doesn't really, like, release or distribute these ones, but, like, you know, it, it's iffy. Like, it's right. very iffy. Well, so, so is there a second Hunchback or no? I don't think so, but there is appearances of Hunchbacks in Universal films. Like, there'll be, like, a, a, a helper or, like, a stage ghost guy, and he'll have a Hunchback. Like, stuff like that. We never, um... Hammer never had a hunchback, did they? I'm sure Hammer had a hunchback. Why didn't we watch it? That is also my uh, favorite thing to say now. Hammer had a hunchback. Hammer, Hammer never had a hunchback, <laughs> did it? That sounds like a weird like, rap lyric or something. <laughs> um, they never had a creature, which obviously they couldn't, but they had the Gorgon. They did have they the Gorgon. They only had one fucking werewolf. And then they had one in the uh, Hammer House of Horrors. Big miss by Hammer not to have a, another werewolf movie. Because I love Curse of Werewolf. I mean, it's very iconic. And it's not as... I can't believe I'm going to say this. It's not as good as its reputation or how it should be because you have Oliver Reed as a werewolf and it it's, it's much, plays much more like a Quasimodo movie. I would <laughs> I would argue that... Um, I like it. It's great, um, but it's not as I would as forsake every werewolf movie for more Gorgon movies. What's wrong with you? That's nonsense. So I, I, I do like how this is going. Like, I don't... I, I'm glad we're actually getting to, like, the monsters. There's, there's, like, two coming up that I'm iffy on, like, the last waltz and the last something, where I'm like, I don't know how these are going to play out and that kind of stuff, but, like... That's I, the whole point. I literally am looking very much forward to, you know, Dracula when we get into those. I know that The Mummy, 1931, it's a classic, and I've seen it a few times. It's very slow. You hate Mummy movies. You know my... There's yeah. six fucking Mummy movies. But they're not. They're not. See, the thing with, with Universal, we'll get into the initial Dracula, the mummy, and then we'll hit Frankenstein. And we'll get the sequel, Bride, in 35. But then there's like a pause. Like, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. a big pause where, like, they, they got a, a, another breath of air because they were playing reruns. And people are like, these are these are popular. So, like, the 40s, boom, we get more Universal horror movies again. And, they like, that's when that, like, that shared universe stuff started happening. Right. Which is the coolest thing ever. Six money. Well, there's the original mummy, then there's, you know, I don't remember what order, but the mummy's ghost, the mummy's tomb, the mummy's hand, the mummy's curse. And then after that, we have Abbott Costello meet the mummy, which is toward the 50s. So that's the fifth. And then we have the mummy. You figure like they would make one and then call it a wrap. (laughs) Hammer had four. (laughs) So um, (laughs) Hammer didn't last as long as Universe. Well comparable i'd have to say when a hammer is probably the mid 50s all the way up i mean technically 1980 but then they they came back universal never went out but in the universal monster movies you say let's say 31 really 
and then we go all the way up to what? 58? I heard that, I heard the Dracula movies suck. Yeah, I, I heard that uh, the Frankenstein movies could use some life injected in them. <laughs> We're done. All right, bye. All right, let's get in these questions, comments, concerns, all that stuff here. Looks like I got some toothpaste over here on my shirt. That's no good. Well, now you know. I'm calling myself out. So before anybody's like, you got something on your shirt. I know I got something on my shirt. I put it there. It's supposed to be there. All right, um, so questions, comments, all that stuff. Um Explosive action. Last week I asked you, like, if, if money starts getting tight, is there any certain label or certain thing you stop buying in, like, films or whatever? Explosive action. Great video as usual. To answer your question, I simply stopped being a completist. I buy only what I want to watch and moved my collection into A to Z rather than label, which helps me not notice missing spine numbers. The collector's curse. Shelving space is infinite, so why only uh, films for the sake of spine number? Good point. Very good point. Um, Travis Linscombe, question of the week. I actually have to cut back on buying this past month, but that's mainly because I was going overboard on sales and bundles coming out. There's some pre-orders like the Italian Gothic box set of the House of Psychotic Women one that I haven't placed yet, but I'm going to do soon. So I've been saving uh, for stuff down the line. I haven't chosen a particular label or line to cut out, but there are plenty of releases coming out that I really want, but I've been holding back. The new Synapse Creature from Black Lake is calling my name, but I'm resisting at the moment. I've been doing the same too. Pop Culture Massacre. To answer your question, I may have to cut back a little on buying, but I am generally a picky buyer. And um, what is it? 4-1 movie I, FOMO? I, I don't know. what. Right now, my mind's not connecting what that is. Um, doesn't kick in for me like it uh, seems for a lot of collectors. Obsessive compulsive, I guess, or something like that. I agree about the Shout Factory exclusives. I might pick up three or four a year. Communion and Watchers 2 were a couple phases of mine this year. The only label I seem to splurge on is Vinegar Syndrome and their partner labels like Culture Shock and Saturn's Core. I've also cut back a little recently to save up for Cinema Wasteland. Uh, it will be my first time attending. Hope to be able to say hey to you and the whole 22 Shots crew. And as ni- for 1980, Fiend was the first movie I watched to start the marathon, and I really enjoyed it. I was a few beers deep, so maybe that helped, but I think it will make my top 25. Peace, Dave. Yeah, for sure. Come up and say what's up. Skip Barber, I like your answer to the Argenta question. Protagonist and killer combined. Yes, I want to have the most fun or have the most challenging role. Bad Brains Horror. Hey, Dave. Picked up 16 Tongues, Scooter McRae, and Savage Harvest Stan- Eric Stancy from Vinegar Syndrome. Pre-ordered Evil Dead 2, but haven't gotten it yet. Also got Pinocchio 964 Blue. Great show. Want to get slimy little bastards. Oh, let me know what you think if you do. Uh, Movie Junkie Reviews. Didn't know there was a sequel to Evil Dead Trap. There's two, actually. I watched part one recently, and yeah, it was a rough watch. I, I quite enjoy it. it. It has some crazy shit, though, in there. Trevor Linscombe. I heard they botched the Friday 13th 4k pretty bad the brighter colors are blowing out from the video i saw hopefully they do a replacement disc i have the screen factory box set for now but i'll probably grab the 4k if they fix it smudge hey dave do you have an inkling of how soon the 1980 show is going to be recorded or are you guys doing 1941 first i don't know which one's coming first but i expect 80 to be recorded in two parts and released as one possibly in october sometime um ken coakley i had to cut down on buying pretty much everything but i want to get out of this nursing home and even though i'm disabled i want to try to get a part-time job so i can at least afford a few movies here and there before i got sick and overdid it i uh, it because i was buying cheap i before i got sick i overdid it because i was buying cheap blu-rays in, at walmart and target as well as 7-eleven i had a ritual buying two movies at cvs next to my cinema every friday and saturday at midnight i still uh, have three shopping bags full of movies i haven't watched i know for sure that feeling for the time being i will have to watch via streaming but the nursing home blows his fuses left and right and i have to wait for at least an hour to get wi-fi again i also want to have a youtube channel doing reviews but i keep procrastinating I want to do a movie one, um, and my friends want to do that one when I if I get out. And one of those friends wants me to do a heavy metal podcast, and I just had an idea of doing a show about bizarre things that people have have uh, seen 
while at the movies. Between all the years I worked at cinemas and have gone to the movies every week throughout the 70s up to the 2000s, I have plenty of stories and will read the viewer comments to share their experiences. Sounds good. RB, I think that uh, might have been my Patreon pick, Dave, and not Derek B. Anyways, awesome show as usual. You're 100% right. Uh, Rob did pick um, uh, Slither. So Sega CD Universe, Hideki was pretty uh, was decent, but I preferred one. He's talking about Evil Dead Trap. The Master of Movies, uh, Pest, uh, Prestwood DVD Collector. Have you been watching videos of mine lately? Uh, may like what I've got in my collection. Yo, interested? Title, check out my Blu-ray collection. So you heard her. If you're interested, Stephen Burrow, this is going to be good. He's basically answering my question, which companies you cut out. And not one person answered on Earth, so there we go. Good, good standing, um, Stephen. Um, Timothy Matthew Hayes, just about any label I'll stop buying when money is tight, but I notice I will buy more from Kino Lorber, Arrow, and Major Studios when I don't have as much money to spend on some more deluxe Blu-ray editions. Rob Kapinski, Timothy, uh, I, I'm the same when cash is tight. I just generally don't buy. Um, Scott W. Davis, when money is tight, I stopped shout Scream Factory first. I love their product, but the price points were high. Even the sales didn't take much off. Renee Royer, I already stopped buying from Severn because of the shipping costs. Tyler Harris, I guess Scream Factory or Kino because I haven't bought anything from either in a while. Casey Botwin, Severn. I still adore them, but I find their transfers lack a sheen that other labels have sometimes. Donald uh, Plett is... His main studio releases an allowable answer. LOL, Scream and Arrow, seeming seeing that most of their films will be available at a later date. Corey Walter, probably Vinegar Syndrome. Great transfers, mediocre movies, 75% of the time. Dan Tatia, Seven or VS. Too many duds with both labels, although VS has great packaging, so uh, so Severn for sure. Um, Tracy, Mc, uh, Tracy McFace, if I had a dime for every time VHS tricked me with cool packaging only for a to-go, now what, when the film was finished? Dan Tatia, it's, it's, yep, it's a sweet packaging. I like, actually, Vinegar Syndrome because they're, it's my favorite label because a lot of the stuff they release is shit that I may have missed when it came out. And I've seen a lot of movies. But I understand what you guys are saying. Um, Sean Donahue, Gator Blade Films, Dylan Young, Dark Force, Terrence Cover, Severin, Madeline Deering, probably Scream Factory. Most of releases are re-releases older titles. I only really doubled it for favorites. VS and Severin always put out newer titles, never before released. Like the obscure stuff. Either way, I don't really collect titles of any of them. Just titles I want. Peter England, Shameless. Sam Edwards, all of them. Bills and Food over movies. David Gibson, Criterion is one of my favorites, but there is a much smaller chance that their release is going out of print. This means I can usually put them on the back burner and wait for a sale. Zach Puccinelli, Screen Factory. Nick Mua for the this week's question. I'll follow the leader and go with Screen Factory. Their rates are high enough to start with, so when it's time to pinch the pennies, I'll buy my home media elsewhere. Questions. Did you see Barbarian yet? If so, um, is it truly one of the cleverest horror films ever? No, I've not seen it. I look forward to it. What's a horror movie both you and your parents enjoyed watching together? My mom and I loved it. Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby. Uh, my dad wasn't, you know, he. I guess he liked horror movies fine, but he was more of, you know, a Western guy. He didn't really watch many horror movies. Um, so, so horror movies really wasn't a thing. I remember him always doing, like, Terminator 2, I Must Go John impersonations and stuff like that. But I think more Westerns and stuff like that's what he liked. But uh, Or crime films or, or stuff like that, you know. My mom was a different story. She liked Stephen King stuff, so we'd always watch Stephen King movies together. I made her watch a lot of stuff like Hellraiser and Nightbreed. She'd watch a lot of different movies with me, Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, that kind of stuff. You know, my mom was a saint. Um, and 3 has old age improved much over the years. Um, uh, 3D old age has improved over much years. Mia Goth did look... Uh, like an old lady, I felt, um, he, I don't know what he's talking, he's talking obviously in reference to X, but it just didn't translate very, oh, yeah, it didn't translate very well with the thing, and uh, keep those kids off your lawn, and then uh, Abriel Kunos says Scream Factory, so I'm not going to do a question this week, we're just going to hop right into that update. All right, let's start off with the big one, 
the incredibly strange films box set of Ray Dennis Steckler here. So see 20 films on 10 discs with 30 hours of special features. Severn always goes out in these crazy box sets here. So what's in here? Wild Guitar, The Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became Mixed Up Zombies, Body Fever, The Thrill Killers, The Lemon Grove Kits, Hollywood Strangler, Meets the Skid Row Slasher, Cynthia the Devil's Doll, which I have seen, covered it for 1970, Blood Shack, The Las Vegas Serial Killer, Rat Fink a Boo Boo, and geez, that's a lot of movies. And probably more in here as well. It's a very nice heavy box, very cool. And like I try, I've been trying to cut back lately, but I just was like, well, this box sets are just like so inclusive of so many movies, and I just feel like if I ever like almost like need it as like a piece to the library, so I can re- like kind of go back and I always end up watching these box sets when we do retro years because the directors usually have a million movies, and one of them is gonna be from one of those years, and I'm definitely gonna want to have it. So I mean, I've opened my Al Adamson set, my Herschel Gordon Lewis sets. That's from Arrow, but my Al Adamson set, and you know all these kind of sets that they put out here. What was the other one that I know I dived into? Andy Milligan. So yeah, like I'm always happy to have these sets. They're freaking cool. So now we have some DVDs here from Esk video we have phantom killer 2 now i've seen phantom killer 1 it's not great but uh i guess i had to have um phantom killer 2 it is what it is i'll watch it eventually these are weird softcore kind of deals i think they're like uh kind of like put as possibly fake like foreign films but they're actually made in america i'm not 100 we have philosophy of a knife uh andre iskakov or how do you say his name uh istanov i never knew how to say his name but he also did stuff like nails and visions of suffering and i've seen philosophy of a knife it's based off the same stuff that unit 731 movie that uh, men behind the sun is based on real rough stuff this movie's like four and a half hours long part documentary part you know like nasty torture really weird movie i don't know if you can give this uh wholehearted recommend to very many people and it's kind of a one and done but you know i collect the massacre and just for you know weird sake i kind of have to have this in my collection because the the history with you know this director and the the, the actual real life atrocity it interests me to a certain extent um disgusting movie though <laughs> And then, oh boy, I don't even know if I should show these. This is pretty rough stuff. We have the Suicide Dolls. This is the third. And uh, what was this director's name? An- Anari or Naru. He also did uh, My Red Guts. And what was Tumbling Doll of Flesh. So we had the three movies here. Suicide Dolls is the final release on there. These are like weird fake snuff films. Uh, Tamakichi Anaru is how you say his name apparently on there. The short. And I think this is the same movie, just an alternate case. And, uh, yeah, this is just the making of Suicide Dolls cover. I think they're both on there. Turn it over. And, yeah, these movies are very weird. I don't know if I've ever seen this one. I most definitely have seen Tumbling Doll of Flesh. But uh, not for everybody. Not for everybody. Uh, Acquired taste indeed. But uh, that's all I have for an update. Let's get out of here. Okay, guys, thank you very much for watching. And, as always, have a good one. Me.